Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. Let me pray for us as we get started. Father God, we love you. Be with us now in our time of study and hearing your word proclaimed from the page. Um, Lord, give me grace as I deal imperfectly with it. Lord, we pray for Beverly in the back with the babies, and we pray for Tara with the kids now. Uh, Lord, bless uh, the entirety of our service today, and may it be something that honors you and uh, blesses your people. And we'll thank you for that. Amen. Well, we've already read the passage, so let me just go back, and I, I know I did this with 1 Peter, and I promise I'm not going to do this through the whole Gospel of Mark, except for just at the beginning, and that is where I say, last week in the book of Mark, okay? Uh, last week in the book of Mark, uh, or over the last two weeks, rather, we have seen the uniqueness of Mark's Gospel. Uh, we've seen uh, its importance on the African continent, historically speaking. Uh, We've seen who Mark is as a person a little bit. And then more importantly, uh, we've been, he's introduced us in these first 11 verses of his biography of Jesus um, in with the good news. He's introduced us to the good news. Um, And more specifically in that, we've seen a couple of things. As John the Baptist preached, there's going to be an opportunity for repentance, except for now with this opportunity of repentance, there is the guarantee of forgiveness. But it's not just that. We're going to see the Lord coming. God himself, or a servant of his coming in some way. John doesn't know exactly how that's going to happen, But we started to see it happen last week in Jesus' baptism. And also we see the guarantee, as Isaiah promised, and then as John promised to us again, of a greater baptizer, the Holy Spirit. Or rather, someone that was going to baptize us with more than just water. Baptize us with the Holy Spirit. What we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that God makes promises throughout all of history, and then all of a sudden, here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, these promises are beginning to be kept. There's the guarantee that these are promises that will be kept. As we've been trying to work through the first 11 verses, we've picked out three themes that we're going to be focusing on throughout this whole series, the first of which is a king. A king. Who is this king? Well, we were introduced to him last week in a very special way. Um, We were introduced to him through through his baptism, where we saw prophecy being fulfilled. The Holy Spirit coming down upon him, resting on him, in that we see that this is someone that is empowered and enabled for ministry like no one else. Also in that we have the guarantee that that baptism, that promise of baptism in the Holy Spirit is going to be a reality for you and me. 
Also, we see one of the greatest mysteries of our faith in Jesus' baptism, and that is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in one place at one time, revealed in a way that was clear, that had never been revealed to any of God's people before. So this is a unique event that we're seeing in Jesus' baptism. And last week specifically, we see that we have been called to a promise of forgiveness through repentance and that Jesus is the only person that has ever been empowered and prepared to offer that to us. And this week, we're going to get to another one of our big themes, actually two of them, his kingdom, what it looks like. Now, just like the baptism of of the Holy Spirit, um, the kingdom is something that is much maligned, it's much loved, and yet much misunderstood in the world around us. They're both great things, and yet we greatly misunderstand these things. And Mark and Jesus is trying to help us understand these things better. And then lastly, discipleship, which we're calling a constant and continual call to repentance and faith and following Jesus. A constant and continual call to these things. So this is where we have been. And... Let's see where we're going. I'm going to read the text real quick one more time just so we can get a feel for it. Earlier in the week, okay, so I work out of a Bible that doesn't have verse numbers in it. And so I thought, wow, these six verses are really difficult. And then I pulled out my Bible and I miscounted and I thought, wow, it's only five verses. I can't believe I'm struggling this much with five verses. And then when I actually sat down and typed everything on Friday, I realized, oh, this is only four verses, okay? So um, they're, they're, they're difficult verses. They're difficult verses, and we need to um, work diligently to try to understand them. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is a very unique way of talking about Jesus' temptation. Luke And Matthew, do it in such a way as to actually describe what Jesus was being tempted with, how he was being tempted, potentially what his temptation meant for him and for us. But here, we don't get that. All we get is a mention of some wild animals. Should we even pay attention to this? I mean, honestly, Mark's such a quick gospel. Is it that important? Even the wild animals are important here, and we're going to see why that is. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here's our big idea for today. Mark chapter 1, 12 to 15. Jesus remains sinless when we could not and came to save his people from their sin. Jesus remained sinless when we could not remain sinless, and he has come to save us from our sin. Now, if you think that that sounds like a very simple big idea or something that we could repeat throughout this entire gospel, you're right. We are going to be repeating that through this entire gospel. Why? Because 
this story of Jesus' life as we're reading it here, in all of its uniqueness, is the good news. Even such fine details as Jesus being driven out into the wilderness to be with the wild animals and angels ministering to him. It's a fine detail, but it's one that we don't want to miss. So, the first thing we have to see here, immediately, what does this mean? Because the other gospel writers really take their time to flesh these things out. And um, I hope that I won't be made fun of for this because I've more adapted to this time schedule than I have an American time schedule, though it may not seem like it. But I really think that Mark is talking in African time terms here, okay? (laughs) Um, Did Jesus go from his baptism? Did he pop up out of the water without drying off and then run straight out into the wilderness? Okay, that's probably not exactly what happened, okay? Mark's not saying that Jesus didn't slow down to take a meal or to um, pray with people or anything like that. But what Mark is trying to say is he's trying to keep the story going, okay? And he's trying to say, right after this happened in Jesus' life, this happened in Jesus' life. And then we're going to see it next week two more times immediately, immediately, and we're going to see a timeline start to form. Is it a timeline, timeline that says, okay, at 6.30 in the morning, Jesus uh, was in the water. 8.30 in the morning, Jesus was in the wilderness. He spent the next 40 days there. 40 days later at 8.30 in the morning. No, I don't think that's what Mark's doing, okay? He, he's using general terms about time here to keep us moving. He wants to get to the point of Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection, what it means for us, okay? So that's what we want to do as well. So here's a question, though, and I've already touched on it. We talked about it last week, actually, and that is this whole idea of the wilderness. What's going on in the wilderness? Why did John go out to the wilderness? Was he already in the wilderness? How did people know he was out there? And this is, this is a couple of the things that we said last week. The Israelites know a thing or two about the wilderness, right? They were lost in it for 40 years. They wandered in it. They ran from people in it. They knew that in the wilderness, they had problems. Constantly falling into sin, not repenting of their sin. Given the opportunity and instead turning to other gods over and over and over again. And they also knew that in order to leave that wilderness and to enter the promised land, they needed to repent of their sins. In fact, in a a certain way, in some older Jewish literature, um, in, in, in old Jewish baptismal fonts, it used to be actually two staircases, and instead of someone like dunking you under the water, you just walked down into the water, and then you walked back up the other side. And they did this as a picture of what happened in the Red Sea when God led his people out of Egypt into the wilderness to take care of them there. So Jews know a thing or two about wilderness. And for a Jew, going out into the wilderness is an expectation of salvation. They're desiring it to happen. They're wanting it to happen. They know that it needs to happen. So that when John's out in the wilderness saying, repent, Be baptized. Know that something big's going to happen. That's why all of Jerusalem and all of Judea came out to him there. 
because they knew how important the wilderness was. And here again, we find ourselves in the wilderness with Jesus. Why did Jesus go out to the wilderness? We don't have a great picture of why that's happening in Mark's gospel, but he does give us details that we need to focus on. And that is, first of all, we get the emphasis that this was for 40 days. Why does that matter? Why does 40 days matter? 40 days, is that a magic number? Is that how long, and this is an argument that many will make, is that how long Jesus could fast for and not die? Okay, we're not going to go there. I don't think that's the purpose of what the 40 days is for. Rather, the purpose of this 40 days is a reminder of another 40 where God's people spent their time out in the wilderness. See, when God's people were lost, and God's first people, Israel, were lost in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around, waiting to be placed into the promised land, they kept failing, they kept sinning. And yet, what does Jesus do here? For 40 days, he remains sinless, with temptations being thrown at him. Now, unfortunately, when we think about the temptation of Christ, we usually just think about, okay, this is the one time in Jesus' life where he was tempted by something. But we also know that that's not true, right? Because when Peter says, hey, Jesus, I'm ready to set up your kingdom right now with you. Give me a sword and let's start the revolution. Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. Why would he say that? Well, because this is the same thing that Satan tempted him with, right? He set him up on top of the temple and he said, all of it, all of it's yours. You know it's yours. Just take it. And yet Jesus refused. And Jesus refused when Peter offered him the same thing as well. It's not the only time in Jesus' life when he's tempted, but the temptations that we read about in Matthew and in Luke are going to be kind of, I guess you could say, what could become Jesus' pet temptations, right? And we all have these things. Certain things that tempt us. For me, it's, you know this, it's chocolate, it's cheeses, and food, right? I want to be eating these things all the time. And so Tara keeps tightening the wallet, trying to tighten my belt a little bit. That's fine. We got to do it. But it's a temptation out there for me, all right? We all have these little things in our lives or big things in our lives, And the reality is that much like Israel being lost out in the wilderness for 40 years, we're going to fail. We're going to give in to our temptation. Now, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who guides you and protects you, but you all know that we can quench the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We can say, hey God, I I hear you, and I'm ignoring you. Because we do that. But Jesus here is pictured to us as someone that did not do that. See, he came up out of that water with John, the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove, a picture of God's faithfulness to him, a promise to him, and a promise to us that Jesus was going to be led by God the Father through the Holy Spirit, not into temptation, but into faithfulness, into sinlessness, so that in our faithlessness and in our sinfulness, Jesus would cover over all of that on our behalf. 
in this temptation and in Jesus' baptism, uh, we said this last week with his baptism that Jesus is in some way trying to relate to us. Did Jesus need to go into the water for repentance and forgiveness and all that? No, he didn't need to. He did it to associate himself with us, himself with us. He did it to say, I'm doing what you do. And now Jesus is dealing with, in this scene, what we deal with. Except for he's handling it better. And he's not saying that to say that I am the better person. He's saying that to say I'm the better person for you. So that you don't have to be. Right? Uh, We see this in a confession. uh, uh, Something that we confess often. Truly God. He became truly man. Two natures in one person. Uh, And I can't get into this morning as much as I would like to all the things that this means about what temptation was for Jesus. And uh, yeah, we're not going to get into that this morning. That would be a great thing for another time. But simply to say here, Jesus is showing us that he is truly God at his baptism. And he is also truly man. He's relating himself, himself to us. And he was with the wild animals. And now this is a small detail, but I love it. I love it because when I first read it, I thought, wild animals, I don't know. I feel like I would just maybe make a fire and scare them away, right? Um, was Jesus in danger? Is this here to, to tell us that, wow, this is a tense scene. Jesus is out there all by himself. The wild animals are lurking about. No, I don't think that's what John's saying here. He is, or sorry. John Mark, I keep messing it up. Mark, okay. Um, What he is saying is that, yes, Jesus is alone. In fact, he's out of reach of humans. He's not with tame animals, he's with wild ones. You know who put him out there, kind of? Our first father, Adam. See, what was the job that Adam was given in the garden? To rule over it. To gently and sovereignly rule over creation, giving the animals names, so on and so forth. Adam and Eve chose a different path. And because of that, the beautiful garden that was, they were removed from it and put out into the wilderness. These animals that they named are no longer friends, right? (laughs) They're no longer pets or whatever they were. Uh, but they become wild animals. And here Jesus is out in that wilderness that Adam has created with these same animals and what's not happening. They're not consuming him. In a certain way, he's at peace with them. The angels are ministering to him. In Jesus' temptation, we see all the failings that we have being reversed. We also see that in this moment where Satan is tempting him, and we know what happens, right? Jesus primarily quotes Scripture back to Satan from the book of Deuteronomy, a book that, mind you, was written while God's people were in the wilderness. Quoting from Deuteronomy, and through that we see, both in this gospel and in the other gospels, um, as 
Paul makes mention of in Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Okay? And we see that several times in 1 Peter as well, talking about the powers of this world being nothing anymore compared to him. It was in this moment that Jesus began his defeat of Satan and his minions. It was in the cross where it was fully confirmed and the promise that one day that work would be completed. Okay. We see elsewhere in the biblical text where uh, the angels are referred to as potentially helping Jesus or actually helping Jesus. We're not going to go into that right now because we're moving on from a temptation to a declaration here. After John was arrested, so we're going to see, we could see this in the other Gospels, where slowly John the Baptist phases out, right? And, and Jesus' ministry is ramping up. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That sounds like a big statement, doesn't it? The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, for a Jewish person to have heard this would have been simultaneous, at the same time, joy and fear. We studied this when we walked through Isaiah together. This day of the Lord. The Lord has a day. Right? This is a day that promises salvation, and it's going to be great after it's done. But in the meantime, it's going to be a day that promises salvation through judgment. So, at the same time as this is really good news, it also is like, well, wait a second. What kind of kingdom are you talking about here? And how prepared should we be for a day of judgment? Um, real quick, uh, one, one author, uh, I think he's been dead for quite a few years now. His surname is Lad. Anyway, he talks about the kingdom in very specific terms. And we're only going to be able to define what this kingdom is more in a couple of weeks, though we're going to try our hand at it today. But I just want to walk through a couple of things because we often hear things like we are building the kingdom. We are extending the kingdom. Um, Other phrases that have a hint of truth to them, but maybe don't give a complete picture of what our role as the church is. Is. And so this is going to be a whirlwind, okay? You don't have to write all this down. We'll see it again later. But we see some things that the kingdom does throughout the entire New Testament, okay? The kingdom can draw near, it can come, it can arrive, it can appear, it can be active. These are all action oriented things that God is doing with his kingdom, not something that we are doing with his kingdom. Um, And then there are things that can be done with the kingdom. God can give the kingdom to people, but people can't give it to people. Okay? That sounds a bit strange, because when we share the gospel with someone, we're inviting them into the eventual kingdom, and yet we're not giving it to them. It's something that God gives. These are all uh, just taken from different mentions of the kingdom in the New Testament, okay? Okay? Um, God can take it away from people, uh, but we can't take it away from one another. People can enter into the kingdom, but we do not build the kingdom. 
That's why it's God's kingdom, not our kingdom. People can receive it. People can inherit it. People can possess it. But we can't establish it. We can reject it or refuse to receive it. But we cannot destroy it. We can look for it. We can pray for its coming. We can seek it, but we cannot bring it. Um, We can find ourselves in it. That is to say, whoa, we're there. Uh, The kingdom does not seem to grow, though. Uh, We can do things for the sake of the kingdom, but we do not act on the kingdom in any way. We can preach the kingdom. We can pray for the kingdom, but only God can give it. So throughout the entire New Testament, that's a survey of what can happen with the kingdom. Okay? might not seem very important right now, but as we define it, it is going to be very important. Okay. But this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming here, he says, the time is fulfilled. The time's right. All the time that is needed to take place has now taken place, and the kingdom of God is at hand. What must we do if that is the case? We must repent and believe in the good news. Now, this is an interesting way of saying, of talking about the kingdom, right? Um, In a similar way, it's like what God did with his first people with the promised land. He said, hey, look, if you want to go into that promised land, you have to set aside these idols, these other gods, this not relying on me, the sin, you got to repent. Similar to what John the Baptist was asking everyone to do. As we studied Isaiah, what was one thing that we always said um, God was working towards in our world? Uh, His people, in his place, under his rule, experiencing the fullness of his blessings. This is what Jesus is inviting us into right now. So the kingdom of God is at hand. Has it arrived? I'm I'm confused, Jesus. What's going on now? Why is it at hand? That would have us believe that it's right there in front of us. What does that mean? Well, here's the big idea. I, I think that what we need to understand throughout the entirety of this conversation about kingdom is we need to understand that without a king, there is no kingdom. And where the king is present, there his kingdom is also. Without a king, there is no kingdom. And where the king is present, there his kingdom is also. See, the kingdom of God was at hand because Jesus was at hand. And since Jesus is at hand... Since his kingdom is right there before us, what do we need to do? We need to repent. And as we already said, this is a command. And it's also a truth that Jesus is stating. When Jesus says, repent, what does that mean? It means, well, you know, I was a pretty good person, but Jesus says that I should, you know, set myself aside, and so I'm going to follow him. No. For Jesus to say, you, 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 me, repent, 
is for him to say, you stand condemned and judged. And you have no hope but to set aside yourself and your sin and to rely fully on what it is that I'm offering to you. And that is the belief part, the good news. Now, to believe, this means that when we believe, it's not just that we say something is true, right? I could say, yeah, no, I I think that what Jesus said is true, and um, I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. No. Because if what Jesus says is true, it asks something more of us. Not that we must do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's good news. It's not bad news. See, bad news would be to say that because Jesus is present and because his kingdom is coming, you must uh, follow this rule and follow this rule and follow this rule, then maybe you'll get into heaven. No, that would be bad news. Good news is to say that all you have to do is to rest in and rely upon this good news. For us, what this means is Jesus' person and his work on the cross. We must rest in and rely upon that for our safety as the way to salvation. And this does totally affect the way that we live our lives. It totally changes the way that we live our lives. In fact, it is a constant and continual call to repentance, to faith, and to following Jesus. That's the discipleship component of what this kingdom is all about that Jesus is talking about. Here's the good news, though. Or some more good news. I think it's all, it's all pretty much good news at this point. But here's some good news. Um, repentance, faith, these two things are inseparable. They go together. They can't be taken apart. And they're both gifts from God to you and to me. The confession that we read this morning, there's another chapter in it that says this. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred responsibilities. That is, that we own some amount of responsibility. And they are also inseparable, can't be taken apart, gifts. Wrought in our souls or worked into our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God. These are gifts given to us by God that we are to be responsible with and to act upon. We see this, actually. This is a gift from from God in Acts 11.18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted, granted, given as a gift, repentance that leads to life. God gives repentance. Or in Ephesians 2.8, we read this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What is the grace? Grace is a gift of God. Faith is the grace, okay? Faith is the grace and faith here are together, and they are the gift of God given to you 
Repentance and faith, they go hand in hand, and they are both gifts given to you by God. Now, for all of us here this morning that believe that to be true, that believe that um, Jesus was sinless on our behalf, that he saved us from our sin, that have repented, that do believe, that are diligently seeking to follow after God, um, follow after Christ, We have salvation. We have the salvation that Jesus promises here in the Gospel of Mark. For us as a church body, you know, some could say that, or some would say, that the kingdom is the church. I don't think that's true, okay? We're called to be the church. We are called to do things Uh, that have kingdom ideas in them, to live a kingdom kind of life. We could use that kind of terminology. But, But here's maybe the last thing I would like to say on the kingdom, okay? The kingdom arrived because the king arrived. Jesus is not here right now. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And yet, Christ made a new body for himself here on earth. The body of Christ, the church. Now, the church is not the kingdom. We can't get these two confused. But the visible church, that is you and I sitting here that confess Jesus as our Savior. um, This is also where Christ's kingdom should be visible. It's where we don't do everything perfectly as things will be in the kingdom. But that we work diligently to make sure that we are honoring one another, respecting one another, loving one another, all the one another's, all of them. And in that, we get a small taste of what Christ's kingdom will be like. But also note that if we ignore the king and his people, we're ignoring the kingdom. We're not accepting Jesus' invitation to repent and to believe and to enter into it. Okay, I have so much more to say, but I uh, need to make sure that Kean isn't brutalizing Beverly back there. So let's just look at our big idea one more time. Mark 1, 12 to 15. Jesus remained sinless when we could not and came to save his people from their sin, giving us the repentance and faith that we need. Giving us the repentance and faith that we need. Just now, Pastor Tom's going to come up and lead us through the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, But before he does that, let me just pray for us real quick. Lord, this morning, me and my fellow church members here bring one thing to the table, our sin. And you bring sinlessness and victory over sin. You bring salvation with the proclaiming of your kingdom. You bring the promise of forgiveness because it's yours to offer. 
you bring us to repentance because it is a grace offered by you. You gift us faith so that we may not just respond once, but daily rest on and rely in your Son's saving person and work. God, we love you and thank you for the time that we could spend exalting you through the power of the Spirit and in the name of the Son, Jesus, our Savior and King. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about Him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.